The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, how you doing? Welcome back to another episode. Uh, This episode is kind of a time pinch sort of thing for me. I tried to set up some interviews before I left for Glasgow, Scotland, and I just didn't have time to work it into my schedule. Um, As it is right now, it's uh, 10 in the morning on Thursday the uh, 21st, and I'm leaving for the airport in just a few hours. I'm I'm leaving at about 2 o'clock, so uh, I tried to get an interview, um, and it didn't really line up, and even if I got an interview this morning, I don't think I'd have time to edit it and do everything I have to do to actually put together an episode. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach into the mailbag and I'm going to go over some questions and they're primarily going to just be based around um, jewelry, which is, you know, one of the topics that comes up all the time on the show, jewelry and management and wait times and selection and logistics and just all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm going to talk a bit about jewelry. Uh, quick reminder, um, you know, because today I'm, I'm leaving to go to Glasgow for a class. Uh, I've got two more classes after this that are open for registration. I've got a class Monday, March 18th in the Los Angeles area, the uh, North Hollywood Hills to be specific. Uh, I would love to have you out there. So you can go to precisionbodyarts.com slash seminars. You can uh, read up on, on what's going to be available in the class and how to register for it. Looking like pretty strong registration. I've got around 25 people so far. Uh, you know, I'd like to get maybe another 10 or even 15 more and, and make a, a big group out of it. Should be pretty fun. I still need to get my Airbnb sorted out for that. I want to get something nice before everything is, is snatched up and maybe get something beachfront or something. Uh, one more class after that, the weekend of the Boston Tattoo Convention. That'll be Sunday, uh, March 31st. I'm going to be doing that two-hour class all about nipple piercings. Again, you can go to the same website, precisionbodyarts.com seminars. Or uh, if you're a Facebook addict like me, you can follow the Body Art Education by Ryan Willett Facebook page. That will have all the different events and all the different classes that I'm going to be doing. And then that's going to be pretty much it for my private classes until after the APP conference. I have to kind of hunker down and put all my energy towards that. So I probably won't be back on to the private seminars until around June or something. So um, if you're interested, let me know. This is probably going to be my only class in California for the foreseeable future. Anyhow, I don't have any other classes planned uh, on that part of the West Coast, maybe like far north. I might maybe try to squeeze in Seattle later in the year. But as far as California goes, this Los Angeles class on March 18th is probably going to be the only one for a good while. So jump on it if you can. Uh, one last thing while I was packing for this Glasgow class, uh, you know, I've got an exclusive shirt for the, the class with some, some whales on it. And uh, I was going to bring a few other things, you know, hats and hoodies and stuff like that. I just didn't have a lot of space in my suitcase. So um, go to, uh, again, precisionbodyarts.com, but uh, slash shop. And you can still see the Gentian Violence hoodies, a couple different t-shirt designs. I've got the Defend Piercing beanie caps back in with the uh, the black and purple logo. I've got some Defend Piercing caps, uh, baseball style snapbacks. So pretty cool. Go ahead and check those out. Uh, if you buy them, I would very much appreciate it so I can kind of clear out the inventory and maybe do some new shirts for the spring and summer. So for now, let's, uh, let's start getting into some of this Q&A stuff. 
So this first question is actually somebody who submitted a question before. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about um, retail websites, not naming any names, and talking about maybe the uh, the, the pitfalls of, of that whole system. Uh, looks like the same person submitted a second question. It says, Hi, Ryan. First of all, thank you for your thoughtful response to my question about online jewelry stores. I have another question for you, although it might be harder to answer this one without potentially stepping on some toes. And I understand if this isn't something you can comfortably answer on your podcast. Well, I don't mind stepping on toes. Uh, If so, please discard this question. Uh, For a bit of background, I recently read a forum post about a certain well-known jewelry maker and piercer who makes pieces that some in the industry argue are unsafe for piercings. Despite this, their pieces are pretty popular. It seems as though handmade, single-person jewelry production companies are becoming a popular choice in the piercing industry, and I was wondering how, if at all, these independent jewelry lines are regulated to ensure client safety. With the larger, well-established companies that distribute to pretty much every reputable studio, it seems that there is higher accountability than for the individuals who make jewelry out of their shop. I am curious about the level of transparency and accountability required by these small-scale jewelry makers from the industry and was wondering if there's anything I should be concerned about. As always, appreciate your thoughts. And uh, I appreciate you submitting questions, so thanks again for that. Um, here's the problem, is there there is really no such thing as the, the piercing police. Um, I know the APP... Uh, tries to fulfill that role in certain aspects, but it's very limited scope. You know, we have um, a health and safety agreement that members have to sign, and it says, uh, I agree to not use, you know, X, Y, and Z, not great jewelry, you know, certain kinds of materials, um, definitely no external threading, things like that. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the person you're talking about. They're very well regarded, um, super creative, and sometimes their creativity involves experimentation. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a generational thing. You can see uh, the, the artisan jewelers, like their jewelry styles change from, you know, month to month, year to year. And I think the, the person you're talking about has been kind of cutting uh, like grooves and, and channels into their jewelry. And the, the problem is if you install that jewelry through an initial piercing, it's essentially the same kind of, of potential damage as externally threaded jewelry. You know, squared off rough edges going through uh, unhealed piercings and, you know, it's not something where you can use, you know, maybe a, a taper to help, you know, protect from the threads, you know, d- different stuff like that. So. I see where you're coming from, but when it comes to actual liability, uh, it gets a little bit trickier. You know, I, I think body piercers really have to be very well informed uh, consumers and, and and buyers. And you know, if you're going to ask questions, you know, if you're going to ask uh, material certifications and things like that from the large companies, there's nothing wrong with asking those same questions from the smaller companies, the the individual manufacturers, the artisans. Um, I want to know what's in my jewelry, and if someone can't answer me. You know, maybe it's great jewelry and maybe they use quality materials, but if they can't back it up, if they can't show some sort of, um, you know, chain of evidence kind of thing, you know, the source material, a mill certification or or something from a a casting house or or something like that, um, I'm just not going to buy it from them. You know, unfortunately, that's just the way it goes with uh, the standards and practices that I have in my own studio. And I would basically just encourage anyone else out there, you know, if you if you care enough to demand the best. Um, you know, if you if you have an issue with something, if something seems a little bit fishy, even if it's from a, a reputable piercer, reputable manufacturer, you can wave it off, you know? There have been plenty of times where I've ordered jewelry, um, bought some stuff at conference just based on, you know, buzz the buzz of someone's name, you know, okay, everybody's talking about this jewelry company, I wanna buy some stuff. 
I got burned once, you know, I bought some gold and they were like, well, yeah, it's plated gold, but this and that. And that, that taught me the lesson of like, you, you don't waste your money on, on plated gold, you know, like sure, it'll be a little bit cheaper, but it's because it's a little bit cheaper, you know? So when it comes to uh, artisan handcrafted jewelry, ask the same questions. What's it made of? Hey, you know, uh, I don't like these grooves or these these indentations cut into it. You know, what, what kind of things do you have uh, to protect the client? You know, are these edges rounded off and, and, and polished and buffed? And are these sold explicitly for heel piercings only and not used for initial piercings and, and things like that, you know? The trend of the piercer jeweler is only going to increase um, as time goes on because I think, you know, number one, piercers like to express their creativity, but number two, you know, it's, it's a career and people are trying to make money. So, you know, sometimes people find out that some of these jewelry things that, that people do are, it's very entry level, you know, jeweler work. So, you know, making a seam ring is reasonably simple. You know, I, I, I took some just beginner jeweler classes a few years ago so I could kind of understand goldsmithing a little bit better. I didn't really have any intention of manufacturing anything, but I wanted to understand, you know, how does soldering work? What's in solder? You know, how, how is stuff polished? You know, how is stuff cast? How do you set a gemstone? I just wanted to learn stuff like that. There was a cool little place, um, maybe 45 minutes south of me called Metalworks, and they do, you know, uh, jewelry, jewelry one for beginners. And uh, it was a cool, like, multi-week class. I would go down once a week and, you know, practice making a, a finger ring or a bracelet or something like that. But I got to, to, to learn the broad strokes of a lot of different techniques. And now, when I look at some of the, uh, the the jeweler artisans, you know, like, I'm not talking about the the companies, you know, where there's multiple people. I'm talking about, like, one person with a bench at home or something like that, or one or two people in a shop make, making some jewelry. Um, that stuff is is pretty entry level. You know, I'm not going to knock anybody for it, but that doesn't really meet my definition of jewelry manufacturer. That's, you know, more along the lines of artisan or, or hobbyist even. Uh, seam rings, really easy to, to make. Um, but again, you know, it, 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 it's tough to make it perfect, you know? So, um, a lot of companies out there making seam rings, they're just doing like a flat edge seam ring. You know, it's a little bit tougher to do that cup and divot style, that kind of like ball and socket fit, which I absolutely love. And I, I really don't want to go back, you know? So sometimes I get letters saying, Hey, would you like to buy our seam rings? You know, would you like to check out some samples? And I look at it and it's like, well, yeah, I'd love to, to buy it, but you know, I, I only carry cup and divot style. And some, some companies can't do that because it's not really super entry level, you know? And then when it comes to other stuff, I think the next step after seam rings is you start kind of soldering on beads and individual gem findings onto a ring, you know, and that's the point where somebody really has to hunker down and get serious about it. And they can either be a hobbyist or they can be an artisan, a craftsperson and kind of continue on and, and improve and get better and get better. You know, sometimes it's just practice and trial and error. Sometimes people actually get training, you know, master jewelers or they go to different classes, things like that. But you know, and, and again, like I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I'm not super impressed by some of that, um, you know, entry level craftsman work. Uh, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. But, uh, you know, if I'm going to spend my money, I, I, I think I, I'm going to probably spend my money on somebody who can answer all the questions, um, who can show me, you know, the, the source of their material and, and talk about what's in it. And, you know, obviously like flawless results too, you know, I want smooth, 
polished surfaces. I, I need it to, to meet APP standard as, as something I can pierce with typically if I'm going to buy it. You know, sure, aftermarket jewelry is great, but aftermarket is a smaller section of my clientele, and I really want to try to get things that I can actually pierce with that's viable, that's, that's realistic. So, you know, uh, artistic stuff aside, I like to see people kind of push the limit and, uh, you know, evolve as, as an artisan. Um, not all of it translates into something that I would be comfortable using in my studio. So same thing for you. You know, if you're a, a piercer with high standards, um, ask a lot of questions and make the decision for, for what's right in your studio. But don't, you know, fully dismiss these, these people because it's just like us as body piercers. Um, it takes time to get where you want to get, you know. And if people are manufacturing jewelry and they're one or two or three years in, um, that's going to be a completely different jewelry line when they get five or ten years in, you know. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the, the major manufacturers would look back on the stuff they were producing 10 or 20 years ago and they'd be maybe not embarrassed, but they'd, they'd definitely see some flaws and, and you know, where they were going to improve from there. You know, really good example, industrial strength and Anatometal and Body Vision and Leroy and Body Circle and, you know, Intrinsic and all those companies... Uh, that are out there, body gems and neo metal, like they all started as, you know, kind of a, a really small scale artisan craftsmanship, you know, and they they doubled down and they improved it, you know, and, and I think that's what the the jewelry industry is really lacking right now is people that really put in an investment and time and money and staffing and really try to increase the quality of their jewelry. You know, if it's kind of like a, yeah, I'll like, I'll, I'll bang out some, some bent rings, uh, you know, in my spare time and kind of put it out there and hope that people buy it. You know, that's not really my thing. Um, you know, great. If you want to support that, if you, if you like the quality and, or, you know, the person and you want to kind of support their journey, uh, more power to you. I'm a little bit colder when it comes to business. You know, if it's not something that I, I'm confident that I can sell and, and something that I, I don't know that I can use safely on my clients, it's not really going to be right for, for my studio. But, uh, you know, that's that's just one person's opinion. So uh, go ahead and check it out. And, you know, I do want to say that I support all those craftspeople out there. But, uh, you know, keep your game going strong, improve your stuff all the time and be open to questions, you know, and take it as uh, constructive criticism. Try not to take it as an attack if people ask you questions about, you know, how the jewelry is made or, or give you feedback on, you know, hey, I don't think this is viable for an initial piercing. Just kind of stay open to that stuff because that's how everybody improves. All right. So uh, on to some more questions. This one comes from uh, a piercer named Red says, Hi, my name is Red. I'm a piercer from Baton, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years and recently have been binging it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, two questions that are that are pretty closely related. First one is uh, regarding jewelry and displays. When are there too many options? Are 50 different ends too many? How about 75 or 100? At what point does it hinder your ability to navigate your case and what your customer wants? How often have you forgotten you had the perfect piece in the back but haven't gotten to put it out yet and you remember an hour after you pierced your client with something less fancy and not suited for their style? Uh, there have been particular times I've forgotten. We had certain jewelry style, sizes, and, and colors. Sometimes the client can get overwhelmed as well and I, I totally know what you're talking about and it's really not so much quantity. It's all about presentation. Um, you know, For a long time, 
I had really sparse uh, options for, for jewelry. I remember when when I started piercing uh, back in like the, the 90s, my, my pricing system was easy. It was like $25 for anything with a ring, $35 for anything with threaded jewelry. And that's it, you know? And at the time it was like kind of a claw and scratch for what was available for jewelry. So I didn't really have options because I couldn't afford to buy jewelry. Uh, then when it came into the time in like the early 2000s when I owned my own studio, it was like, all right, I'm going to have the size options I need for lots of different piercings, but not really like fancy options. It was really just plain at the time steel jewelry. So it was really just a plain ball. And I remember it being a big deal when I finally had like a, a one gem ball that they could pick, you know, so I didn't really have a lot of options for a while. My first company that I really started to expand uh, and get options from was Neometal. You know, and I started off like, okay, I'm just going to get two millimeter white CZ prong and, and, and that's it. You know, and I can use that for a couple different piercings with different backings. And then slowly it was like, okay, well, I'll try different sizes and styles and clear, try different colors with those different sizes and styles and, and kind of grow out from there. And now I'm at the point where I, I have... Not every single piece that Neo Metal has because they've been expanding over the last few years, but you know I have pretty much all of their colors up till you know, about two years ago. So you know, however many options that is, uh, you know, fifty, sixty, eighty, or something like that. You know, I've got all the staple colors in all the different bezel sizes, all the different prong sizes, all the different uh, cabochon opals, and all the different sizes. I've got the the flowers and the little. Uh, three stone clusters and, and all that stuff, you know, and just that alone is a lot of options for people, you know, so if you just have it all wedged into one display or wedged into one little area, they're going to look at it and it's just going to look like a rhinestone jacket and they're not going to be able to actually hone in on, on the one piece of jewelry they want. So the big thing for me is, you know, I space it all out. I have multiple, multiple uh, neo-metal acrylic displays kind of in a row. And it's kind of sorted intuitively by color and size. So that's usually where I steer people if like, you know, if they want the affordable piercing with titanium, uh, you know, they, they can basically just look and it's intuitive to the way where it's like, okay, well, I like this color and I like this color. So I'm going to look at those colors and then within those colors, I'll pick what kind of end piece I like. So that's not so bad. But then when you move over to my gold case, that's where it can get a little bit challenging. You know, for a long time, gold was not a huge thing. I didn't really have to worry about it because I couldn't really afford gold options. You know, I'd have maybe one really small body vision display and I'd have maybe 20 end pieces from, from body vision and, uh, you know, a mix between rose and white and yellow. And then as time goes on and I start to realize, okay, clients are really responding well to you know, these particular kinds of end pieces, you know, the feather or, you know, different stuff like that. That's like, you know, easy sellers. Uh, then it was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to get, uh, I'll get that style in all three colors, you know, I'll get it in white and rose and yellow and, and give them more of a selection. And then it kind of grows out from there and it turns into like, well, now they like this style and now they like this stone and now they like this and that. And then after a while it's okay, I'll, I'll break it off and I'll have one display with all my rose gold options, one with all my white gold, one with all my yellow gold. And then, you know, I got really into anatometal gold, you know, especially when they first released the, uh, the push pin end pieces that were compatible with the neo-metal backings that I already had. That was great. And it was really easy for an upsell or for somebody coming back and, you know, changing an end piece on an existing piercing. That was awesome. But it gets really complicated when you have all these, you know, a hundred plus options and people just kind of stare, you know? So what I like to do is I like to break it up visually. Um, if I have a whole shelf of jewelry, 
uh, all the different types of jewelry, they're not going to be in the exact same displays. You know, I'm going to use different displays, different heights, especially, you know, really use verticality in your cases and it can really make things stick out as like the showcase piece, you know? So the body vision stuff is on like a little raised platform and, you know, I have some of my anatometal stuff in a little bit of a lower platform and they're kind of separated where you can look at the anatometal and basically, you know, the way that I use my anatometal gold is it's um, typically synthetic stones. I try to keep that as like my, my mid-level price point. Um, you know, the stuff that people absolutely love it and they can grab it and it's, it's affordable. Uh, and then the body vision stuff, I'm usually trying to stick to more uh, genuine stones only. And I kind of push that as like, you know, it's the, the upper, upper tier of what's available, but that's because it's also kind of the upper tier of, of pricing. So I want to have those things uh, separated. You know, I want to have some branding in the studio, but, you know, it's not going to be heavily branded. You know, I want people to come in and I want them to think, you know, this is precision body arts jewelry, not necessarily one brand. And we're going to get to that in actually the next question, too. Uh, so when people look at the jewelry, you want to kind of create a, a path for their eyes, really. You want them to be able to look at the case and move around and clearly be able to distinguish um, you know, A from B from C. You don't want to just have everything all jumbled together. So use different colors, you know, use different textures, use different frames and displays and height and verticality. And you can put some simple labels on things. You can put in little artistic flourishes, you know, floral things, or you can go to a craft store and you can get all kinds of fancy stuff to kind of like spice up your case. Um, you can do different um, minerals and, and, you know, stones and, and things like that, that, that really kind of accentuate just the feel of, of jewelry for people, you know, and it's a really cool experience, but a lot of it is also communication. Um, you know, I, I don't want to leave the jewelry cases for people to just kind of stare until they find their own thing. So that's when it comes into uh, staffing, you know, and you really, you really want to have people that are trained uh, and that they're going to be experts on what's in the case. They need to be able to answer every question about it. Like, okay, who makes that? And, you know, is that going to be good for this piercing versus that piercing? What kind of stone is it? And, oh, you know, like, is there nickel in that? Uh, you know, is it, is it safe to wear for someone who has sensitive skin and, and whatever? You know, you want to be able to have a, a highly trained person being able to answer those questions. So a big thing for me for jewelry management is I also have um, my, my retail book. And that's basically all the jewelry we have in the cases. I don't put price labeling on any of my jewelry. So what I'd basically do is I make a nice display. I take a picture of that display and uh, I make a page where I, I number all the jewelry on the picture. And then I have like a, a chart and it says, you know, okay, piece number one is, you know, rose gold with this stone and this price and whatever. And everything is laid out really intuitively. So the, the customer really all they have to do is just look around and, uh, you know, give the staff an idea of like, oh, I like this one. I like this one more and I don't like this one. That's not my style. And what the staff is trained to do is to uh, pay attention to their cues and, and what they're interested in, the colors that they come back to, you know, where are their eyes looking? What are they pointing at? You know, what are they mentioning? Uh, and then to kind of show them the retail book and and say like, oh, that's a lovely piece you picked out. You know, that's a, a genuine champagne diamond. That's a genuine Oregon sunstone. That's a copper vein, purple turquoise, you know, and, and this piece is called the this or that, you know, this is the Elizabeth and this is the, you know, the, the whatever. And um, it, it really increases the value. So sure, clients will definitely get bogged down 
if you just leave them to their own devices and just expect them to pick the perfect jewelry for them, I think a lot of it is back and forth. You know, so a, a lot of it is the service, the customer service that we offer to help them find just the right piece of jewelry. And in a situation like that, you know, as long as the staff knows exactly what they have in the shop, uh, then it's it's easy to manage it that way. But you know, stuff in the back—that's the thing for me—is I I really try not to have backstock because that's the stuff that just gets completely forgotten about. You know, there are times where I'm going through uh, drawers in the back, doing inventory, checking uh, levels for for ordering things like that, and I'll stumble across something where it's like, oh man, why did I put this in a drawer? You know, I could have sold this ten times over if I had had it out in the display case. There's nothing inherently wrong with having backstock, but you want to have responsible levels of backstock. Really, the only stuff that I carry backstock of are, you know, the posts and, and bars and component pieces, things like that. I've definitely got backstock of all that stuff, no problem. Um, uh, and then neo metal, I've got plenty of backstock of that. Lots and lots and lots of neo metal posts in my in my store. Um, so you know, we always want to have spares of those and spares of colors for like the popular neo metal styles. But I've really decreased my my backstock too. You know, it used to be like okay, I want to have thirty of of this one in stock. You know, and uh, now it's down to like you know, okay, maybe I'll have five of this one because we're so diversified that. You know, we're not moving a lot of the titanium white CZ prongs anymore. Now we're moving a lot more, you know, white gold prongs with CZ or white diamond or things like that. So, you know, you want, you always want to pay attention to your backstock levels. And, uh, you know, if you're having jewelry that's just sitting out in the back, you know, why is it sitting out in the back? You know, do you need to rethink your displays up front? Do you need to expand them? Do you need to reduce how you're ordering? Do you need to change the frequency of your ordering? You know, all that stuff. Jewelry that's in the back is kind of wasted in my opinion uh, because if the customer can't see it or if the staff can't see it and know it's there nobody's going to buy it so what's the point of having that jewelry so i really try to focus on uh, jewelry to fill my case um, back stock of the the posts and you know accessories that i'm putting that jewelry onto you know the component pieces things like that but a lot of the the fancier ends the the visible ends the the cool stuff um, that's all going to live in my display case and I, I don't really want to have a lot of that hiding in the back. So uh, hopefully that helps a little bit when it comes to jewelry. But, you know, that's that's a, a crazy topic on its own. If you go back uh, a bunch of different episodes ago, I did two episodes with Brianna Sheehan from Mint Piercing. And we talk all about jewelry for like three hours. And it's a great conversation. So, you know, if you really want to go like deep down the hole of, of body jewelry options, those are definitely some good episodes to uh, to go back and listen to. All right, so this next question is also from Red. I uh, appreciate it. And it's, uh, should we tell the client what brand the jewelry is? Should we display the brand names? This is one I go back and forth on. On the one hand, they deserve to know what they're buying, potentially buying. On the other hand, how likely is it they could just Google the name and buy it online? Does branding the jewelry make it sell better? Would avoiding mentioning brands lead to less confusion among clients? Well, that's tough. Um, I do a mix in my studio. Uh, there was a point when I was really excited and really motivated to start bringing in um, you know, new brands and expanding brands and all that stuff. So at the time, sure, I was branding everything. Every time I'd make a jewelry order, it's like, hey, do you have some some stickers that I can put on my display case? You know, do you have any sort of cool little display accessories that I can that I can put in my case next to your jewelry or whatever? You know, and I'd I'd put it on the website and I'd do this and I'd do that, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. So some of these companies 
um, you know, let's say 10 or so years ago, they were growing and expanding too. They were uh, modifying their, their branding and, and the, their sales structures and things like that, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, wholesale to studios only in bulk, or if they were selling individual pieces retail to clients, you know, directly through a website or through some sort of like online retailer or something like that. And, um, you know, I've talked about it on the show before. A lot of these jewelry brands, uh, they they owe a lot of their uh, market share and exposure to body piercers. You know, so it's those body piercers who are really enthusiastic and excited about carrying their jewelry, who are the ones you know promoting the brands and talking about it on social media and posting a lot of the cool content and pictures and all that stuff. And um, you know, if if a, a a manufacturer decides, well, you know, now that I've got this really well-established brand, I'm just going to start selling direct to clientele and kind of cut out the middleman, which are those piercers who are doing a lot of their work for them. Situations like that have happened, unfortunately. Um, it, it is kind of taken as sort of a slap in the face by some piercers, you know, especially some of those larger studios who are really bending over backwards to, to build brands. Um, and, you know, conversely, there are some some brands who have made the conscious decision, we will not sell to online retailers. We do not want our jewelry listed online. We want people having that customer experience, uh, customer service experience of going into a shop and, you know, finding the, the perfect jewelry for them and not just a piece of jewelry. You know, when it comes to certain, like, basic kinds of jewelry, I wouldn't say there's really much of an issue with it. You know, so in my studio, um, I'll have... Uh, certain displays that will be non-branded and that's because it's usually a mix of a couple different companies you know I'll have one uh, one frame and that'll be all the different captive pieces that somebody can click into a, a ring all the non-gold captive pieces so there'll be a lot of different uh, you know captive gems from industrial strength and anatomy metal and, and you know intrinsic and stuff like that I'll have one frame of threaded clusters you know, uh, five and three stone curve clusters and uh, options for industrial piercings, you know, different kinds of orbits and, you know, center accents. And, you know, one frame will be all nipple jewelry options, you know, things like that. And But they're mixed, you know, they're from a few different companies. So that I'm not going to brand because I think it would be pretty confusing. Um, what I, again, I, I like to make it more of like, this is the precision body arts jewelry for a nipple piercing, you know, a daith, doth, an industrial, you know, or a helix piercing, stuff like that. So they can look at it and, and when I'm having a conversation with a client, instead of bouncing back and forth between 10 different displays from different, uh, you know, branded companies, it's one display for the piercing that they're talking about. So in that sense, I, I like to do that. Um, but there's plenty of other jewelry in the shop that I do brand because the name is very strong. Uh, I'd say maybe five or so years ago, uh, people would come in and they wouldn't necessarily know the name Anatometal or Body Vision, you know, uh, because social media maybe hadn't really grabbed them yet. Um, they hadn't really been exposed to it. They hadn't been in other studios that, that carry it. So when they'd come in, they'd see, you know, oh, this is the gold. But now the social media presence is so strong for some of these companies that people come into the shop for the first time and they say like, oh, you know, where's your body vision? Where's your anatomy metal? Where's your neo metal? Do you carry this? Do you carry that? And it's like, yep, totally. We got it right here. So those kinds of clients are really going to appreciate seeing uh, some sort of branded display, you know, and, and body vision is a really good example because they sell their own little branded displays 
fit the jewelry perfectly aesthetically they all really balance and go together well there's tons of different configurations so it's cool you can do a lot with with their displays um, neo metal has that like very classic very distinct display um, so it's good to have that you know and it's it's an acrylic display and i think that works well to kind of differentiate you know that jewelry line from the gold jewelry line you know you don't want to make it look like it's this massively expensive exclusive brand if it's kind of be kind of like your your economy line you know so i think their displays match their jewelry line really well um and other than that you know i'm not going to use a lot of branding um on my website i'll definitely talk about the different companies that i use i'll say you know we proudly carry body gems and Leroy and intrinsic and gorilla glass and and all the different companies we carry but when it's actual jewelry in the case, it's probably not going to have a big sign right on it that says like, hey, you know, this was made by so-and-so company. This is Diablo Organic Stone because it might be right next to a, another company's stone. So it's kind of a balance. You know, you can use uh, the branding work of these companies to your advantage, sure. Um, you know, people coming in and checking out pieces and then pulling out their phone and Googling it and seeing if they can buy it online cheaper somewhere else. It's not a huge issue in my studio. I've been really fortunate in that way. Um, I think part of it is, you know, how we just manage the customer service experience. I think part of it is that, you know, those clients uh, might not have ever realized that there, that there are body jewelry retailers out there. The other thing about it is, you know, I'm not, I'm not listing uh, the names of all the pieces, you know, again, going back to um, having the retail book and the, the jewelry line and all that stuff, like I don't have labels on it saying like, okay, this is the Sarai and this is the, you know, the whatever name of the jewelry is. So it's not going to be super easy for somebody to Google it. You know, they might be able to Google a name, but then like what options is, are, are what results will that return, you know, and it's going to be tougher for someone to really hone in. But, you know, when it's something like a, uh, you know, forward-facing gem barbell, industrial strength, mint green. You know, that that's that's a term that you can Google and you might be able to find it on a, a jewelry website and whatever, but um, I haven't had to worry about it too much. I know some bigger shops in some bigger cities that, you know, they really do have to actively compete with those retailer websites. And in, in a situation like that, sure, maybe I would completely change my branding around. You know, everything would just be my shop logo or my shop name and, and you know, not really talk about the... Um, the the jewelry line but a lot of those jewelry lines are cool and they're exclusive and that's what people want they want to be able to show off to their friends and say like check out i got a body vision piece you know think back to you know if you're a body piercer or if you're a big fan and think back to the 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 first piece of high quality jewelry that you got to buy um, and you know you were probably proud that it's like oh you know i i finally can afford jewelry from industrial strength or jewelry from you know all these other different high-end companies so sometimes clients really like that. Uh, you have to kind of find the balance for you in your own studio, though, and make the right determinations. You can tweak things. You can have brand presence in your studio without necessarily branding the individual jewelry or individual displays, though. Okay, one last jewelry question for this week's episode. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on threaded versus threadless jewelry. Do you offer both in your shop? Advantages and disadvantages? Are there certain piercings you prefer one over the other? Why and why not? I'm not sure what to invest in. So I can tell you that uh, they, they are both crucial in my studio, threaded and threadless. So, you know, if you're not super familiar, um, you know, standard uh, internally threaded jewelry, the end piece will have threads that will screw into the post. Um, I, you know, and just a, a quick little thing, if you're not a body piercer, or, you know, if you're a piercing enthusiast, external thread jewelry is something that you do want to avoid, in my opinion. You know, it... 
It can have its place in people's career. It certainly had its place in my career. But now that I know the difference, I would never feel comfortable going back to external thread jewelry. Um, if you look at it as it's a step on your path forward, uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to knock you for it. But if you see external thread jewelry as yeah, it's fine. I see no reason to move past this. Then you know you might want to reevaluate your priorities and uh, you know what's available to you. Uh, I'm not going to like dump on anybody. You know it's all about forward momentum and, and progress. So you know try to move forward. But when it comes to internal thread jewelry, that's going to be what I'm talking about when I say um, you know threaded. So internal thread jewelry, uh, the threads will be on the end piece and that will screw into the post. And you don't want no uh, visible threads on the post itself, that would be external thread jewelry. When that goes through a person, there's potential for scratching and tearing, damage, trauma, things like that. Whether it's a heel piercing or unhealed piercing, um, external thread jewelry can be damaging. So try to stay away from that stuff. When it comes to internal thread jewelry, uh, that is going to be like a lot of my barbells and circular barbells and, and larger pieces are all going to be threaded because I want that security. I really want that end piece to be able to lock on there. When it comes to threadless jewelry, uh, again, if you're not familiar, there's going to be a small pin on the back of the end piece rather than a thread. That pin, you put a very slight bend on it, and then when you insert that into the end of a, uh, a threadless post, it'll just have a, a hole drilled into it rather than like a, a tapped and threaded hole uh, to, to accept uh, threaded jewelry. So the pin, you put a slight bend on it, and when you insert it into the post, that straightens the pin out a little bit, and that uh, basically works like spring tension. The pin will be pushing against the wall of the post, and that tension is what keeps the, the, the end piece on. Uh, threadless jewelry is awesome as long as you understand the limits of it. You know, there definitely are limits. So if you have a very large end piece, you know, if you have like an eight millimeter wide big end piece on an 18 gauge or a 16 gauge threadless post, um, there, there's going to be a, a good amount of potential for that pin to get uh, loosened for it to catch on something and, and yank off, you know, threadless jewelry is not going to be immune to things like, you know, snagging it on a towel or a loofah or something like that. So, you know, I, I kind of have my my line. It's going to be piece by piece, but usually the, the larger, more elaborate end pieces, gold or titanium or whatever, um, usually the larger and more elaborate ones I'm going to order in threaded. And the smaller stuff, I'd say up to maybe around four or five millimeter. I'm usually comfortable with a, a pin backing. Kind of depends on how the pin backing is made. Uh, I gotta be honest, like you know, I I love Body Vision and I love their quality, but I'd say that the one thing that I that I don't care for with some of their end pieces is the fact that they use a, a gold pin on the back of their jewelry, and gold is going to be inherently softer than something like steel, which is usually the pin backing on, you know, if you get something from Body Gems or if you get something from Anata Metal, if you order their gold ends as a, a threadless end piece, it's going to be on a steel pin. And that steel is going to be able to have a lot more tension on the post, a lot more of a secure lock, um, less likely to break. You know, I, I can't even really count how many times I've had to send back pieces to Body Vision for a repair because the gold pin snapped off. So, you know, just, just have realistic expectations. If you're ordering a big elaborate thing with this really expensive stone uh, and you, your options are either a steel thread or a gold pin backing, my comfort zone is probably going to be that steel thread. Uh, you know, so if somebody wants to drop $500 on an end piece, uh, you know, most likely it's going to have a thread on it. It's really going to lock onto that end piece. But at the same time, I've got plenty of stuff that falls into that one or two or $300 
tier that I'm perfectly comfortable with with a steel, uh, I mean, sorry, a, a gold pin on the back because the size of the jewelry uh, is is not overly large. So it, it will lock onto a post, it will lock on securely, uh, and I don't really have to be worrying about it. Uh, other threadless jewelry, you know, um, the neo metal stuff, that's all going to be manufactured out of one piece of titanium. The end piece and the pin are all going to be machined out of one uh, small titanium block or rod or, uh, and it's super crazy secure. You know, sometimes when I'm popping those neo metal end pieces on, you get that like scratch, scratch, scratch kind of sound when it's like pushing into the end piece and you're like, okay, that is going to lock on there. And that might even be more secure than a threaded piece. You know, like how many times have you assured yourself, like, I definitely screwed that thing on as tight as it goes, and then it just loosens up and, and falls off, you know? Sometimes threadless jewelry is going to be more secure. Um, sometimes threads are going to be more secure. It really just depends on the exact piece and how well you apply it. You know, when it's gold gold pins, um, there is a little bit of an art to doing that kind of, um, you know, double bend, Z bend, however you want to refer to it, to really get like maximum tension on a, on a threadless post. Uh, but then again, you know, screwing on a little end piece. Some people might have larger hands, uh, wider fingers, and it might be really difficult for them to say, screw a, a two millimeter gem end piece onto this tiny little curved barbell in a rook or a tragus or, or a nostril or something like that, you know? So threadless jewelry might be uh, better for them, more secure for them, because they can snap on that end piece with a good amount of tension, and they're going to be able to get that tighter than trying to screw on some tiny little end piece that they might not be able to get a good grip on. So um, I think both are very valuable in studios. I have loads of, of both for options. Um, I've got, you know, easily two or three hundred threadless end piece options in my studio between all the different uh, gold and titanium options. So, you know, I love it, but again, I've got tons of threaded options too. You know, those those curve clusters, you know, those five stone curve clusters, no chance. I'm going to be getting those in uh, a thread uh, threadless backing. Those I'm going to want to have them like threaded on uh, really securely. Um, but, you know, you got you to gotta have a good concept for application, you know. So if you're a piercer and you're looking to expand into this stuff, uh, I would definitely say start slow, start small. You know, don't go for gigantic end pieces first off. You know, get some small stuff in both options, threaded and threadless. See what works for you, what's easier for you, what gives you the, the most secure and, and best results. And then you can get a little bit larger and a little bit larger. But some of that stuff, it's gonna be pretty obvious whether you should do threaded or, or threadless when it comes to the size of it and the potential for losing that end piece. You know, it depends on the, the body location. It depends on what kind of backing it's on, the size and the style and, you know, uh, just, just different things, you know, how it might encounter. Is it gonna be something that's gonna maybe catch on people's hair or clothes or have something pressing against it? Uh, is it gonna be uh, on the face? Is it gonna be something where the client needs to be able to change it on their own, you know, and what's gonna be easier for them in, in those situations? So uh, both are very valid, both are very useful in the, the studio and, and I use plenty of both. So I just wanna say, uh, you know, extra special thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Uh, I'm gonna get that uh, that Google form put back up on the podcast uh, Facebook page. So go to Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook and you can click on the Google Doc about submitting questions. You can do it totally anonymously. You know, if you're nervous about giving your name, you don't have to. Um, if you want to just send me a question directly, you can always uh, message me on Facebook or you can email me at ryanpba at gmail.com. Um, I really like doing these questions. 
questions. But uh, next week, I will be back with another interview for you. As I said, I'm recording this just before I leave for Glasgow, Scotland, and that's going to be for that class with Jeff Saunders. So we're going to be together for a couple of days. We're definitely going to be able to record at least one podcast, you know, maybe more than that, depending on, you know, how the mood strikes us and how much scotch we have while we're over there. And, uh, you know, just kind of keeping it rolling. Uh, I'm going to be coming up on episode 100 shortly. Uh, this should be posting as episode 98. Probably have one with Jeff for episode 99. And then I recorded uh, an interview yesterday with Brian Moeller, my, my good friend from the Boston area. And Brian was actually my guest on episode number one. So I, I thought it was important to bring him back for episode number 100. So, uh, you know, keep your eyes open for that one. That should go up, uh, you know, two weeks after whenever you're listening to this one, if you're listening to it uh, new. And we talk a lot about um, the pitfalls of social media and the traps of like validation and, and all, all that stuff. You know, it, it can be a little bit ugly, social media. You know, it's got a lot of good stuff to it, but it's got a lot of not so good stuff to it. Uh, changes people's lives, you know, maybe for the better, maybe not for the better. But, you know, we explore a bunch of different topics on that. Uh, you can go to precisionbodyarts.com slash seminars. You can get all the info for my March 18th class in the LA area or my Sunday, March 31st class at the Boston Tattoo Convention on nipple piercings. Uh, you can go to precisionbodyarts.com slash shop and you can buy hats and hoodies and shirts and whatever. And I will be back next week. Thanks for listening. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>